The British, the British dream. Below our expectations. We're about to be an all country. We're about to be a country. Wonderful to be here. The British dream podcast. Join us. Powerful people as we launch up despicable acts like these and the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this Shut up in your face. is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. Hey, welcome to the British Dream, Vice's politics podcast. My name is Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. Today I'm talking to Gracie Bradley, an advocacy officer for Liberty, who does a lot of work around rights for migrants. She wrote an article on Vice recently entitled, The Windrush Scandal Shows Why the Hostile Environment for Migrants Must End, in which she argues that the Windrush tragedy is no accident, it's the system working as intended. We welcomed the Rindrust generation those many years ago. Try to calm down. They are British, they are part of us, and we are ensuring that they remember. And behave like an adult, and if you can't, if it's beyond you, leave the chamber, get out, we'll manage without you. The last couple of weeks have seen the government drowning in controversy over the Windrush scandal. That is, citizens from former colonies who migrated to Britain following the Second World War being driven out of their jobs, out of benefits, and even deported, having been set absurd and unrealistic criteria to prove that they really were legit British citizens. The human cost has been enormous. Theresa May was forced into a shame-faced apology, the government has set up a specialist task force to deal with the issue, and now the Windrush generation will be able to register as citizens, hassle-free, we're told, and compensated. The kind of ongoing discussion since the Windrush scandal started has been around whether this stuff was like malice or design is this just a big fuck up or is it something intentional? Gracie, you argue in the article that you wrote for Vice that this isn't a mistake, this is the system working as intended. But surely, despite this government's obsession with reducing migration, it can't have been their intention to send away established communities that have been in the UK for decades. How do we sort of explain that? Well, I think... The issue with a hostile environment is that you cannot create a hostile environment just for people who aren't meant to be here. However, that's determined by the government. The reason that this kind of, it's difficult to see this as anything less than intentional is the destruction of people's landing cards. So in 2010, I know that there's been some back and forth about when this decision was taken, but in Mm. 2010, a decision was taken to get rid of Windrush landing cards and Home Office staff at the time used those landing cards to evidence a person's arrival in the country and their right to be here. Uh, The government knew at that time that it wanted to implement a system that meant that people would have to show identity documents when they did things as mundane as renting a house or going to the doctor. So while it may have been justifiable to destroy those landing cards if the government knew that actually we were going forth into a kind of idealist utopia uh, where nobody had to show their documents for things, you know, that would be one thing. But the government destroyed those landing cards at a time that it knew it was going to be making increased demands for documentation. And it knew exactly which groups were going to be affected or were likely to be affected um, because it had identified which documents it was going to destroy. And it knew how, how those documents were used already in immigration processes. Um, I think it was a 2014 report by the Legal Action Group, a small charity that detailed that there was actually, you know, a group of longstanding UK residents who had the right to be here who were very likely to be 
detrimentally hit by hostile environment measures. So there are at least two pretty big decision points for the government, um, whereby if they had not intended for these communities to be affected, they could have very swiftly taken action to ensure that those people were not affected. But they didn't do that. They chose not to do that. And what we know from journalists who've reported on these cases for the last few months is that they have been routinely telling the Home Office, look, I'm talking to this person, this is their case, and they've been repeatedly rebuffed. It's only now that it's become a kind of very big scandal that the government is saying, oh, no, 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 this was never our intention and we're incredibly sorry. Mm. Um, you know, Theresa May did not think that it was necessary to go to the Commonwealth Heads meeting, you know, I think it was 10 days ago, um, and very quickly that, that there was a vote fast there because public opinion was against her. So there have been an awful lot of opportunities for government to do things differently if this was not what they intended to do. And so what do you make of like Amber Rudd or Theresa May being like shocked that this has happened and... I don't know, how sort of credible do you think that is? It might seem far-fetched. You have to remember that the one guiding policy objective of the Home Office for several years now, since Cameron was voted into power, has been getting net migration down to the tens of thousands. That is the context in which all of this has to be viewed. Unfortunately, all other public policy objectives have been subordinated to that one, whether it is the prevention of crime or making sure children can go to school uh, without fear of deportation or the protection of public health. Everything has been subordinated to that net migration target. And um, so because it's net, that means emigration is good, right? Getting f as few people as possible into the country and as many people as possible out of the country. Um, unfortunately, that is that's the objective. But what I would also say in terms of government knowing or not knowing is that there are letters that were signed off by ministers refusing to reconsider people's cases. So members of the Windrush generation, I think it's the case of two brothers. James Brokenshire, who was the immigration minister at the time, the, the letter has his signature on it, you know, saying that the case would not be reconsidered. Um, so I think it's very hard to imagine that letters were going out with ministers' names on that, and they had given no policy direction whatsoever. If that was the case, and I really don't think it is, either way, that's a scandal for the government um, because either terrible things were happening and they knew nothing about it or terrible things were happening and they knew everything about it. But either way, that is the government's responsibility. Mm. And I think the trajectory of the hostile environment and of this these stories and the people who've tried to raise these stories shows, you know, multiple times over nearly a decade, that would suggest that this is not just some terrible accident. And to what extent do you put it down to Theresa May when she was Home Secretary? I think it's not necessarily that helpful to suggest that the hostile environment came out of nowhere and mm -hmm. that it was solely the brainchild of Theresa May. Um, I think it was like Alan Johnson first started using the phrase? There are a couple of Labour figures who had used the term hostile environment beforehand, but it's important to look at the structure of the policies. So the structure of hostile environment policies, it's not generically, let's not be nice to migrants. It is cutting people's entitlement to public services um, and other general public goods like safe housing or lawful work or free healthcare. So it's saying some migrants, mainly all undocumented migrants, and some migrants here lawfully can't have access to certain things. Second, in their structure, hostile environment policies, 
outsource immigration functions to frontline workers or private citizens. So you've got landlords or teachers or health workers being forced into doing immigration checks. So those are the structure of hostile environment policies. And yes, it was in 2010 that an interministerial working group on the hostile environment was set up. But if you look at policies like no recourse to public funds, which prevents people from accessing welfare benefits on the grounds of their immigration status, or if you look at workplace employer checks, um, those are policies that were introduced um, in the 90s. Uh, so it's not necessarily that helpful to think, oh, well, we only had a hostile environment in 2010 because we've had some de facto hostile environment policies for a much longer time. Um, mm. And of course, sort of government rhetoric on sort of crackdowns and bogus applicants, etc. I mean, that's a rhetoric that has been very popular for decades. And you've kind of explained like a lot of what goes on but let's just like fully lay it out what are all the things that sort of contribute to a hospital environment so you're not allowed a bank account if you're an undocumented migrant um mm -hmm. and all other 70 million bank accounts in the uk now get checked quarterly to make sure that the account holders are not on a list of undocumented migrants that shouldn't have a bank account mm -hmm. um so you can't get a hospital can't get a bank account can't get a job without getting checked on hospital you can access a and e and primary care for free so a lot of migrants will be charged 150 percent of the treatment cost for non-urgent care and if you are a temporary worker or a student you'll get charged a levy which is 200 quid the government has said that that's going to double and also if you are undocumented but you go to a and e your address the address that you give to the hospital could then be given to immigration enforcement so there's an awful lot of border controls in healthcare. you can't rent with if you're an undocumented migrant um you can't rent lawfully anyway and technically, everyone should be checked if they're going to look at a residential tenancy. In fact, most landlords don't check everyone. And an independent evaluation by the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants found that actually the requirement to check people's immigration status and the threat of a massive fine or a, a massive fine or even a prison sentence if you are a landlord and you rent to someone who's undocumented. They've, JCWI in their research found that I think 58% of BME British people who didn't have a passport were then not called back or they were refused mm. um, by a landlord when they went to inquire. Um, I guess that a bit goes to the heart of what I mean when I say that you can't only have a hostile environment for undocumented migrants. Right. Because the reality is, is that if you outsource immigration control to people who have no idea, you know, which document is valid or which kind of status is valid, what you're going to get is kind of people making decisions on the basis of very crude proxies for nationality. And that's accents, skin colours, foreign sounding names. Um, mm. And in that way, you end up with a hostile environment for a lot more people. So in that example, the person policing the border essentially is like a landlord who might like have a second home that they decided to rent out, have like no expertise whatsoever in the law, basically, or like migration documentation or anything like that. And they're just like making a judgment on you as a person. And if you're like a white person with an accent like mine, then they're not going to think you're a migrant. And if you have a foreign accent and a foreign name and are not white, then they're going to 
put two and two together and possibly make five kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. They're just going to make assumptions. And we like you have to remember that the government has placed massive sanctions on people who do accidentally rent a house or employ to someone who the government says isn't entitled to be here. The fact that people are facing prison sentences for renting a house to someone or for employing undocumented workers or a fine of, I think for workers, it's 10,000 or 20,000 pounds per worker. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Um, and that just massively makes people risk averse. Mm. Um, you know, it's a real charter for discrimination and it becomes difficult to say that it's unjustified so if you're an employer and employ an illegal migrant you get like a 10 grand fine yeah it's so 10, so again you're not going to hire the guy with the foreign accent who may be here perfectly legally yeah who who doesn't who doesn't have a passport for example you know so there's there's just a really big structural sort of incentive to just say no to anyone who seems foreign you mentioned uh the fact that our bank accounts are checked every quarter to make sure that people who have bank accounts are all documented or whatever. So that's a good example of how, you know, you can't have a hostile environment for only undocumented migrants. It kind of affects anyone who might be perceived to be foreign in some way. And then again, it's also like, it seems like this kind of big wedge into the rights of absolutely everybody because everyone's bank account is getting checked, which then kind of opens up the door to a lot of government surveillance of our entire lives right how can you make sure undocumented migrants don't access stuff that they aren't entitled to if you aren't checking everyone who's accessing that stuff um it's like with the with the bank account checks yeah that's basically financial surveillance that none of us can refuse but also it's normalizing the idea that oh yeah when i go to the doctor's surgery i'll take my passport or oh when i go to rent rent somewhere i'm gonna take my passport it it basically sort of conditions people to believe that in all areas of life, it's totally normal to have a piece of biometric ID with you and that mm. all of those interactions can then be checked or logged or kind of, yeah, can be screened to ensure that some public policy objective isn't being undermined by you accessing that service. I also think there's something really worrying about the way the hostile environment has been embedded in our public services because I think it basically sets up the principle that the government is allowed to decide who is and isn't deserving in terms of accessing public services and yeah okay right now it might be undocumented migrants that they're saying can't access stuff but that kind of logic can then be applied to all other kinds of groups who Mm. may be seen as more or less deserving at a given time. If I just think about the way that patients' medical records are being shared with the Home Office for immigration enforcement purposes, the government has now said that actually they don't think that anyone using a taxpayer-funded service should have a reasonable expectation that their address would remain private. And they've said that in a bid to justify their immigration data sharing. But that statement obviously has an implication that is way broader than just immigration. Mm. Um, And I just think about all the kids who grow up in a culture like this who don't know that it was ever any different. I mean, most of us don't know a time when your passport wasn't checked when you went to work because those that requirement came in in 1997. Mm. But before that, it, it wasn't there. And all of these things get normalised so quickly and the state kind of gets so much power so quickly and it seems unchallengeable. And that's quite worrying. What would be negative about me going to hospital and then knowing 
where that where I live because I feel like I'm already registered for a GP right and they must know have my details I mean I don't even think about it but of course but it's it, it's fine if you if you are giving your address to a public service that you're interacting with let's say you go to the hospital you write down your address and you can send you can send for that purpose to the hospital having your address you're like yeah for health purposes you can have my address one of the sort of cardinal principles of our data protection and privacy law is that if you give information for one purpose it should not be then used for another purpose without your consent um and so what the government is really doing there is attacking that principle and so, so they're saying i could go to a hospital give my address and whatever and then it's not that just the hospital has my address it's that the, the entire government can then use that for, yeah. for whatever they want they're basically saying you're using a taxpayer funded service so of course we can use your address how we'd like to use your address and and the thing is is like right now they're talking about address data but if they've already found it so easy to move from sharing for immigration purposes to sharing for any public policy purpose mm. it's very hard to see that they would limit themselves to oh but we'd only share your address why wouldn't they want to start sharing i don't know the substance of people's medical records for substantiating benefit claims or something like that right uh you know it's 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 a very slippery slope We want to ensure that only legal migrants have access to the labour market, free health services, housing, bank accounts and driving licences. And this is not just about making the UK a more hostile place for illegal migrants, it is also about fairness. Those who play by the rules and work hard do not want to see businesses gaining an unfair advantage through the exploitation of illegal labour. In terms of rhetoric, like how important is the rhetoric in the implementation of the policy and how much of the problem here is just language? And Theresa May, you know, saying hostile environment and using very harsh words to please the readers of Daily Mail and how much of it is like actual implementation of policy on the ground. The rhetoric and the policy constitute each other once you once you have a sort of terrible public narrative around bogus asylum seekers or kids swamping schools or whatever politicians feel that they need to do something to respond to that narrative and that's the sort of frame that they get stuck in this is the only way to talk about migration and migrants rights nobody talks about migrants rights anyway (laughs) Um, but you know they and and then they implement policies that reflect what they think is being demanded by that rhetoric um i think it's really important i mean personally i focus on the policy because the policy is what means that Albert Thompson has had to wait six months for cancer care because he was told it was non-urgent and he'd have to pay £54,000. That's not rhetoric. That's policy. You know, this is something that's really gotten me about the Windrush stories. It's just Mm. the number of people who haven't been able to go to their parents' funerals because they were frightened to leave the country. They didn't think they'd be able to be let back in. That's not rhetoric. That's policy. You know, I don't know if you saw the video of the... There was a man who spoke to Channel 4 and he was crying because he couldn't go to his daughter's wedding. Um, you know, that's that's policy. People who have had to fight their cases from positions of total destitution because they've been fired from their jobs or their benefits have been cut or their landlords have kicked them out because they've been told they're undocumented. Again, like that's not rhetoric. That's policy. Um, of course, like the wider dehumanising discourse around you know, people being cockroaches, um, swarms, you know, wholesale importation. Um, all of that rhetoric is important and it clearly feeds 
policy. But the point is, is that really government has the power or it's government's decision as to whether or not to design and implement these policies. And the reality is, is that no, Britain, you know, it's never been a place where there was no immigration enforcement and, you know, people could just sort of live very happy, flourishing lives if they were undocumented. But the reality is that since 2010, people have seen concerted state violence in terms of their ability to access essential public services, which are vital for more or less staying alive or li- living just a dignified life, let alone a flourishing life. Mm. And and that's the difference between a sort of general antipathy towards migrants um, in the press and in the public discourse and actual policies that are doing people physical and psychological harm. Mm. I think we had a story in, in, on Vice last year uh, based on some FOI requests about how the government had like used the idea of a reputational benefit of clamping down on migration as like as it, its own reason to therefore clamp down on migration. So it was basically like it, its own like rhetoric and like hysteria about migration had then given them a reason to then clamp down on it. So that this like very circular sort of logic that, as you say, like constitutes itself. But like in terms of like the rhetoric, we're seeing this week it kind of flip from, as you say, swarms and undeserving people to the wind rush generation being sort of super deserving and having built up Britain um, after the war and that kind of thing. Is it is it a good thing that politicians are united in wanting to help the Windrush generation or is it kind of a, a strange sort of the uh, flip side of the undeserving migrant sort of narrative? The fact that there is political consensus on the Windrush generation does not do anything to undermine the fundamental logic of a hostile environment for undocumented migrants unless unless we make it do that. The reality is is that this whole thing's very weird because you know that generation lots of them they did not see themselves coming as migrants i mean until you know immigration laws that were passed in the 60s and 70s everyone was just a citizen of the uk and colonies so it's it it remains a sort of masterstroke in government propaganda that we're talking about migrants at all because those people came as citizens Mm. Um, And I think more generally, people are having a hard time drawing the link between the Windrush generation and a wider hostile environment. I mean, yes, government is doubling down on saying these two things are totally separate. The hostile environment should remain intact. But I think more generally, people don't really understand why a hostile environment led to the deportation of British citizens, which is why it's so important to explain that these measures will always have to target and make kind of make suspects of everyone um, in order for them to kind of reach just their stated, undocumented, undeserving targets. Mm. Um, that's the point that I would really want to bring home. But in terms of in terms of what the government's saying, I mean, they I think it still remains fundamentally legitimate in the eyes of most people to make someone scared to send their kid to school, to make them scared to report a crime, um, to stop them from working lawfully, to stop them from renting like everybody else does, um, to stop them accessing healthcare. It seems legitimate to a lot of people to do that just because someone doesn't have the right immigration papers. And I guess what advocates have to do is maybe be a bit better at telling the story of how people end up undocumented because there's kind of a perception that 
people sneak in on the back of a lorry, know from that moment that they are living the life of a criminal and, you know, that they should be a social pariah in some way. And that's just not how it happens. That is not the reality. Um, people have their documents and lose them and fail to get documents. Um, it is not common, I would hope, that the government destroys their documents. But as we've seen, like, it's possible. If you'd said to people six months ago, the government might well destroy the documents of people who have leave to be here. Everyone would have said that that was ridiculous. And yeah, that's exactly what has happened. It costs over a thousand pounds if you're a child to register for British citizenship. If you're, you know, for one kid, that's a lot of money. If you've got three kids, that's even more. Like we don't have birthright citizenship. So we have kids who are born in the UK or who come at a really young age and they can't pay the citizenship fee and they grow up undocumented um you have other people who come in to the country and there's one set of rules about how you can sort of settle and become a british citizen and then those rules might change so there are people who came in on a tier two visa and the rules were one thing and then it became oh you actually have to be earning thirty-five thousand pounds a year mm. and we're talking about nurses and stuff like you know these people don't earn that much money um so i think people need to understand that often people come to the UK with a status and then they lose it and there's no legal aid for those cases. Um, the rules have changed really quickly and the Home Office's decision making is now so bad that 50% of cases succeed at the immigration tribunal, mm. which is like the same success rate as flipping, it's like flipping a coin. Um, so I think we need to be better at telling the stories of how people become undocumented because it's not only people who sneak in on the back of a lorry, but I would also say that someone who comes in on the back of a lorry should be able to go to their doctor. And it seems like um, Theresa May, in sort of showing sympathy for the Windrush generation, is also kind of in the second half of that like sentence will then reassert the kind of legitimacy of Britain policing its borders, ensuring everyone plays by the rules and that kind of thing, which kind of suggests that the conversation needs to actually move beyond that because like the, the very implementation of these rules is, as you say, like necessarily catching loads and loads and loads of people up in it. The government needs to take some responsibility for people becoming undocumented in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, it's got to think about what it's done to legal aid. Um, it's got to think about Home Office decision making. Um, so on the one hand, I would say, yeah, the government needs to do more to stop people becoming undocumented. But also, it just cannot be the society that we want to live in that just because you don't have the right immigration papers, you are, you know, you're this kind of exploited, marginalised underclass that has no hope of living a dignified life. And I think that Maybe that's some of what we see in the public reaction to the Windrush generation. You know, people, you know, what gets talked about is immigration and borders. What doesn't get talked about are, you know, these are people, these are people's lives. And actually, you know, as we saw around all the campaigning on government attempts to introduce immigration checks in schools, people actually were saying, hang on, no, I don't want immigration checks in schools. And people are saying, no, I don't want immigration checks in healthcare. Um, so you're, you're, you're seeing people when they're forced to confront what a hostile environment looks like for them and their communities and their families, they're, they're actually a lot more circumspect than the sort of big national rhetoric might suggest. Mm -hmm. And so do you see an opportunity to move the conversation from like borders and stuff to people like people in their rights? I don't know that the government is remotely receptive to 
those conversations. I think the reality is, is that the government wants to maintain the logic of a hostile environment. And maybe, as we've seen, you know, the government now likes to talk about a compliant environment. Mm, um, that's, they, that's just a euphemism, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's them trying to say, look, we're the brightest and the best. It's fine if you come, but everyone else, you know, you've got to play by the rules or terrible things are going to happen, basically. Um, the government still hasn't accepted that, you know, that kind of division, you know, it can't hold, it won't work. Um, but I think, you know, I'm always eternally hopeful about what the public will will be sympathetic to when they're confronted with the reality of policy. Um, and I think there is more generally looking at what has happened to people under austerity and kind of the numbers of people who've died because of benefit cuts and stuff like that and people using food banks and child poverty. I think there is an understanding that actually policy and politics aren't some this sounds very condescending I don't mean it in that way but like these aren't abstract things you know that just get determined in Whitehall like these are you know government policy has an impact on how people live and how they die and I think people unfortunately have been forced to reckon with that increasingly over the last decade or so and so hopefully in that there is room for people to say actually maybe not in my name this is too far This government takes action against those people who are accessing services despite being here illegally. Uh, So in the immediate term, the government has said that the Winterrest generation is going to be able to get citizenship, like, hassle-free. They've set up a task force to deal with this. They have apologised. They're going to compensate people. In the sort of, I don't know, next couple of months or maybe the end of the year, what else do you sort of think will happen i don't think that this is plain sailing for the government at all i mean the reality that they're still talking about giving citizenship to people who came as citizens there's there's still something like in the fundamental (laughs) logic that that is missing there um and if their approach continues to be that people need to evidence their you know however the decades of life that they've been in the uk um they're gonna run into massive problems because people aren't gonna have that evidence they're not necessarily gonna want to jump through those hoops and also people don't trust the hotline um the government hasn't been able to say that people who call the hotline will not subsequently be targeted for deportation so they still have a really long way to go even in the very immediate term Um, And it's worth pointing out that they had exactly this issue in relation to the Grenfell immigration amnesty, which again would suggest that like you can't have a hostile environment and then random amnesties for people when the public says... Because people just don't trust you. No, people don't trust you. And also you can't give the guarantees that people are asking for because you you know that you're still wedded to a net migration target. But anyway, so I think it's it's not plain sailing for the government even in the most immediate of terms. Obviously, the we are meant to be somehow re-regularising the status of 3 million EU nationals. Mm. Um, the app that the government has trumpeted doesn't even work on iPhone. I mean, and there are going to be lots of EU nationals who just don't want to go through a process to claim something that they, you know, perceive as already being theirs. They came as citizens again. Um, Mm. So there are potentially going to be a lot more undocumented people after Brexit, basically, um, if people don't want to do that process or if they are, you know, if they don't have a smartphone or can't get on the internet or have other access issues, there there are going to be some EU nationals who are who are undocumented and the government is 
you know, that is going to be another scandal if the government maintains the same logic of a hostile environment towards those people. Mm. Um, but I mean, just in the in the long run of immigration enforcement, I do quite a lot of work on sort of data and tech. And what we've seen in the hostile environment is that the government now has immense power and like capability to lock people out of lots of really important areas of life all at once. That's a kind of technological and bureaucratic capability that it did not necessarily have 20 years ago. Um, And that capability is only going to increase. We've got the government using automated facial recognition. um, The police are using it. There's no law to allow that. There's no oversight. You've got them doing stop and scan um, fingerprint checks that match people's fingerprints, including immigration databases. They match people's fingerprints against immigration databases. So basically the state's ability to do immigration enforcement effectively by the state's logic is going Mm. to increase exponentially. Um, And I guess one thing that we've seen with the hostile environment in Windrush is that the hostile environment hasn't been very good at removing people um kind of voluntary removals have fallen consistently over the last decade and we saw that amber rudd really wanted to kind of implement that missing piece of the puzzle and massively Mm. increase removals and it turns out that they had targets for voluntary departures all this time but i guess my concern is that the work will not be done to grapple with how and why people become undocumented and the fact that actually they need to be able to live a dignified life whatever their immigration papers and government's enforcement capability is massively going to increase and we may well you know there are in moscow there are surveillance cameras five thousand of them that are fitted with automated facial recognition should the government decide that it wants to take the biometrics of people that it collects uh, for immigration processes and put those into some kind of automated system um, I really, really worry about the capability of anyone with the wrong papers to sort of go about their day to day life in the UK. And lots of people will say, so what? They shouldn't be here. But hopefully the point that I've kind of made is that lots of people kind of do have a right to be here and they haven't been able to claim that right to be here and they will become even less able to. And just when you were saying all that, I was thinking like, the fact they had targets for like voluntary repatriation and then the fact that they could be like sort of linking this with facial recognition stuff. The first bit sounds very like fucking BMP, frankly. And then the second bit sounds like Minority Report. It's just like incredibly sort of dystopic vision, potentially. It's a really dystopic vision. And obviously right now the government in its data protection bill is trying to say that nobody has data protection rights when it comes to immigration control. And Amber Rudd in, you know, in her leaked letter, a letter that was leaked, I don't know by who, to The Guardian, said, look, if we can get biometric data from people's home countries to redocument them, then that will be a game changer. So this is like, this logic is already very much like operating within government. Basically, at the minute, one of the reasons that the government finds it difficult to remove people is that people don't have any documents Mm -hmm. and they can't verify a person's identity or their nationality, even if they've got suspicions. Mm -hmm. But what- So you can't like just send someone back to a country that you reckon they're from? No, you can't. You're not allowed to do that. But what Amber Rudd was saying was that if the UK gets data from countries that do have 
biometric databases. I assume Pakistan has one because that's the country she mentions, but also India has one. Um, if you got someone's biometric data from that database or their suspected biometric data and then matched it against the person who is in detention, you'd be able to say, yes, that is that person. Therefore, we can redocument them. Therefore, we can remove them. And one of the things the data protection bill does is it takes away all your data protection rights if uh, data is moving between different countries for immigration control reasons. So anyway, my point is that government is already 10 steps ahead of a lot of people on this and people aren't even imagining, beginning to imagine what that what that will look like. And I hope that what Windrush has done has shown that actually it's like open the door a little bit to get people to think, oh, actually, sometimes the state does target people who are not legitimate targets. And maybe that makes people think maybe who the state says are legitimate targets also aren't legitimate targets. That is what I would like people to start thinking about. Thanks so much to Gracie Bradley for Arm Liberty. The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. If you're up for it, drop us a review on iTunes. Give us five stars, that'd be amazing. See you in a bit. Stay positive and keep the dream alive. Thank you.